she just does different things. I mean, the thing she likes to do is hold. I don't know. When she rolls over and she puts her arm up, she wants you to hold her paw. <laughs> and that we do a lot of that. Like, she lies here. We just hold it while we're reading for hours. That's, that's precious. It's so precious. It's so sweet. And John, too. Both of us just hold paw. So that may happen to you. And that's what that is. It's not... She just wants you to hold her, kind of hold her paw. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode nine, I believe, of So Poetry. Um... I'm sorry that it's taken a little bit in to get this episode up in February. Um, earlier this month it was AWP, and that took a lot of prep and then a lot of recovery time, um, which I'll probably talk about in my next episode. Um, but despite all that, um, I am very excited for this for this particular episode because I am sitting talking with Kendra Kapelke. Um, who was a teacher of mine and the head of the MFA program that I graduated from. Um, and I, we've talked, I think we've had some like longish conversations, but um, since I've started this podcast, she's been one of the people on the top of my list that I've wanted to talk to about poetry just because she's been, she's been writing for a while and she's been teaching for a while and um, I have no doubt has interesting insights into the, <laughs> into the nature Um and workings of creativity. Um, so would you, you want to talk a little bit about yourself as an introduction or do you want to just jump right into the questions? I can jump right in. It's <laughs> nice to be here in my own living room. Um, yes. Uh, next to her, is that a particular type of poodle? It's just... a standard poodle, Gracie Allen. Say hi, Gracie. Hello. <laughs> so if there's any... Uh, any barking or anything in this episode, it is it is that dog, or me trying to blame the dog. Um, but okay, so 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 poetry poetry. <laughs> um, one of the things that I'm I'm interested in um, that I've been talking to. One of the reasons why I've I've started this podcast and I've talked to people um, is. Like the reason why individual people write poetry. So I'd like to pose that question to you. Like of of all the the artistic mediums and specifically literary forms out there, why poetry for you? Well, I think the why is a big question. Something that probably changes. I think that I have always loved words. Mm -hmm. and been especially thrilled by them and tickled by them. And, I mean, certainly other art forms, music and and art, dance and theater, all those things. But I think the act of writing is one that I feel intimately connected with some part of my uh, soul, my speaking soul, Hmm. to be able to articulate things like that. Okay. Um, It's a kind of expression that I... I especially love and I would say I mean I always felt that I fell in love with poetry okay I fell in love with it the way you fall in love with people Mm -hmm. 
And once you do, you're kind of there for, it's there for you for your life. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Um, I love that about it. I love the way that we've had this relationship, really, when I think about it since, mm. you know, in some ways since I was little, and in some ways I think seventh grade certainly wrote poetry from then on, but then I went on to play flute and was a music major, but then sort of uh, took a poetry class and fell in love with it again. Okay. And that was it for me. That, the, that was The second it. time? Yeah, that well, I didn't realize that you could be a poet. Oh, be a be a mm-hmm. sort of capital P yeah. poet. I didn't realize it was something you could pursue as a kind of vocation. Um, I just thought it was up at that that point. I always thought you either had to be dead, <laughs> had to be dead, <laughs> you know, like you had to be dead, or or you just wrote for yourself. Right. Yeah. I didn't yeah, know it was like the, a, like a the hobby. world. Yeah. Yeah, and I found the world so um, inviting and thrilling. I liked the company I was in. Hmm. So that's when I began to take it seriously and think of myself more as um, having an occupation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, going through the, the program, um, and I guess it was probably towards the end that I finally felt like I, I could consider myself like a a poet, like not just a writer in a general sense or like an yeah. artist in a general sense, but finally like honed or got specialized enough that I could consider myself like I'm I'm a poet. This right. is this is an an aspect of like a like sort of semi-professional part of me, but um, defines you. you yeah, know, it, yeah, that's what I think. I think it it's a kind of definition, even yeah. though you don't say it out loud necessarily. Yeah. But it, it defines who you are, and yeah. how, and from there of how you see the world, mm-hmm. and yes. how you want to see the world, yes. how you always aspire to see the world as yeah. a poet sees the world. Yeah. So it's it's not so much a, um, like this is what I do. It's like this is this is who this is who, who I, I am. am. Yeah. yeah. And I, I feel so. It's inter- I didn't realize that you were a music major. Um, but I started out undergrad as a as a music major. Like music music was my first, um, like art medium and then poetry kind of happened on the sly kind of within that um and i went i did a year at the university of new orleans and after that year is like i i can't i can't do it um one i think because the university was just like a soul suck of creativity and it was just Mm -hmm. like not where i needed to be um but i think i i began to get the i think unconsciously i had I had arrived at what I've kind of gotten to more consciously now that there is a sort of, um, I don't know, like desperation that musicians have that I see in like mm-hmm. doctors and lawyers that it's like you're, you, you like, that's your life at that, at mm-hmm. that point. Like you can't be anything other, you can't have any other facets of your life other than yeah, like, I am this. And it's not just, this is a part of me. It's like, this is the totality of me. And at the time, like I couldn't, I couldn't sustain that. Right. I couldn't. I had other interests and I had other things right. going on. And, exactly. Um, and I feel like, with poetry or with being a poet, um, it's it feels it one on the one hand like a more holistic aspect because, like you said, it's like it's it's more of a who you want to be and how you aspire to see the world and mm-hmm. to experience things. Um, but on the other hand, it, like it, that feels like it's much more freeing. That it's not I have to dedicate everything 
for this. It's like this can right. be, this can be infused in everything, everything that I every do. Every word I say. Yeah. Every word I say can, can, be, a poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I agree. It's much more it's part of your bloodstream. Yeah. So when you're not literally writing, you're taking the world in. Mm-hmm. You're taking it in with that kind of second eye. Yeah. Um, and that's. I think, yeah, I do think of it as, a, I guess, a kind of practice, a kind of spiritual practice. It's a practice. Mm-hmm. And you're always practicing. You're always, right. you know, it's right. like that. Yeah. You're all, even this conversation, it's always part of our world. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, um, so I've mentioned this on the podcast a bunch. I don't know if I've, if I've talked to you about it, but I was um, devotedly Christian for like eight, eight or nine years mm-hmm. of my life. Um, and then I slowly began moving away from it, uh, kind of like mid undergrad. And then towards the end of undergrad, I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't justify being this to myself anymore. Um, and I don't feel like I'm affiliated with any other belief system right now, but if I had to choose, I would probably be closest to like Zen Buddhism, Mm -hmm. which has been really interesting to see the connection between, um, I guess the kind of more holistic view of poetry in Zen or like with Buddhism in general, like the mindfulness and the the presentness and the being, being aware and existing in these, in these moments. Cause Mm -hmm. I feel, I mean, haiku has become kind of the cornerstone and the foundation of all the stuff that I write. It's like, that's the kind of the the poetic embodiment of being in those moments and like seeing closely and being connected enough to allow this thing to be true, like right. to find the heart or the whatever right. the essence of that. Um, but like reading Mary Oliver, I think back in undergrad when I discovered Redbird, like that really I think was the first step towards Buddhism for me because of the, just the attentiveness that she has when yeah. she's out, yeah. like on her walks and right. like the ways that she she can see things and draw connections between stuff and just exist in the like. I've read very other few other poets that have the sense of like that really kind of low-key urgent sense of now it's like these things are taking place now right yeah it's that um it's a very temporal space Mm -hmm. that you're in yeah and that's part of the beauty of it it's like it's always it's always dusk you know (laughs) it's always twilight Mm -hmm. night is always falling the sun is always coming up Mm -hmm. it's that moment you're trying to because that's that moment, I think, when you feel the uh, sort of profoundness, you know, of, of, of life mm-hmm. is when the sun is just starting, the darkness is falling away or the darkness is coming. I think poetry lives right in that space. Mm, yeah. Right there. I, I think I would agree with you. Because there there's something special about, like, the, the crepuscular times that it's, yeah. like, you exist... Between, between, like between this. the moments, because yeah. I've I haven't experienced this so much at dusk, but I've experienced this a lot at dawn. Like if you're out and about, like right before sun or right. sun up, right? Um, it I've I've always gotten the sense that you are have somehow snuck, like backstage yeah. of the world, right? And you're you're right. seeing things like being set up, or that you're you're getting this, yeah. um, I don't know. Like you can see the mechanisms yeah. behind, like how things are are moving. Absolutely. And it's, yeah. You're, and you're, you hear creatures that you've never heard before, and 
like things are counter- quiet in yeah. ways you've never heard that kind of quiet. But you're, um, I think in the morning, I, yeah, I used to write when I wrote Hopper's Women. I wrote it, I wrote it from the that moment of darkness to light. I oh, I got in my car. I drove to my studio, which was only like a mile from here. But I always tried to leave in the dark, mm-hmm. so that by the time I got to the studio, it was still dark. Oh, I'd okay. rush. Mm-hmm. And then I'd open the window and I would look at the painting, but then I was I was observing, you know, mm-hmm. the the light changing. Yeah. And I think that affects your body so deeply, and it's such a wordless. Like if the first thing you do in the morning, I think, is not talk. Yeah. Or not hear words. Those mm-hmm. are my those were my two rules. <laughs> I didn't couldn't hear. You know, I didn't want to turn the radio on or no language. Mm-hmm. It was really the language of the world that I felt was always a moment for me to translate, you know. Right. So it was a good, that's a good experience to start your day. Mm-hmm. And that is, like you say, you know, whether or not it's a religion or not, it feels sacred. Yeah. It's a, it's sort of claiming some kind of sacred time every day. Yeah. And I've, it's, it's been really interesting going, so I, I used to much more than I do now, but go to uh, Lake Roland and just, you know, like walk the main trail, but specifically kind of like half for a mind for writing haiku and just have to be right. like to be out there with the intention that if if something happens, I want to be present enough to, right. to write the haiku, right. but to not like to not try to be so so uh, sort of hyper focused on it. Yeah, that yeah. I miss the things yeah, that, that would populate the yeah. haiku. Right. Um, but like being out there and walking around in like the silence and having like, and I, I appreciate that there are other people out there, but I really like I, the times that there's either no, like I can make it into the park and not see anybody or get onto the trail and not see anybody or those moments between like joggers or bikers coming by. And it's like, it feels kind of like you said, like the, there's a sacredness or something there mm-hmm. that um, I think when I was a Christian, I always expected like all the trappings, like like holiness and sacredness and death and all these things to be these huge, like stained glass window sort of in in size. That mm-hmm. they're the like it. They're bright. They're looming. They're huge. Um, and I've come to. I've come to learn, or I think I've come to realize that more, at least for me, more and more often, it's like those things are the small. It's like what haiku look to find. It's like the mundane sort of. Mm-hmm. You know, like the light hitting, um, like a flower in your garden, in a way that it's just right. it it cuts right. it. You know, like that's that's it. That's it. That's yeah. you know, and, and even within within that, I feel like that translation to that's that's a poem. Um, that's right. Like you see poems in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think yeah, you had asked me um, something about how I write, and I think that at some point a real shift for me became. Um, you know this whole idea of, of looking out the window mm-hmm. that I became more interested in being in a place and being receptive mm-hmm. a kind of receptivity and it wasn't mm-hmm. like I was writing mm-hmm. you know it was more that I was um, tr- um, tr- I was receiving mm-hmm. I think it was more that I was receiving mm-hmm. and trying to be in as fully in attentive as I could and that made subject matter go away mm-hmm. because subject matter wasn't at all on the 
you know, I wouldn't say I'm going to write a poem about my shoes. Right. I really stopped doing that mm -hmm. because I felt like what I wanted to wonder about was a kind of consciousness. I wanted to see if I could experience a certain level of consciousness mm -hmm. in my writing. And that was a huge shift mm -hmm. for me. Um, and it made writing much more, um, I want to say, I don't know. What the, I don't know, the experience of writing became so much more rewarding to me because I felt like I had been in conversation, mm -hmm. you know, maybe with a, maybe with a deeper part of my soul, which always I want to have at stake, mm -hmm. but you can't do that on purpose, right. you know, as we said, <laughs> for, that's the way to kill it. Yeah. But I wanted that to be the conversation. So you need certain conditions like, I am not a poet right now, though I know it'll change, who can, quote, write anywhere, who mm -hmm. actually cares to write anywhere. Maybe that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I think the conditions for me are very, um, it has to have privacy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we call it solitude, mm -hmm. which I think, who knows what that is anymore. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is part of the reason why I've been applying to the residencies that I've been yeah, applying yeah. to, just to have... They're really important. Yeah, and even without the condition, because the one that I did in Nebraska, yeah. um, like I wasn't, I was away from, I guess, like society by and large, um, but I wasn't by any means separate from the other people that were there, although I had the option to, yeah. like if I if I wanted to just, there was a, like a writing hut yeah. um, out, on the, the, out in the fields, um, that if I wanted to, I could have just shacked up in there for, the entire day and not seeing yeah. like anybody. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think for me having that option is it's important. That's like I, I won't, I won't seek it out all of the time. But it's important for me to know that I like I could yeah. just, I could just vanish yeah. for a little bit a if little I needed bit. to. Yeah. No, um, I agree. Well, you gotta know. I think you always. For me, it's just such a sense of um, strength, of inner strength that mm -hmm. I think that I can be alone. That I want to be alone. Mm -hmm. That it really feeds me mm -hmm. to be alone. Yeah, I would. I always think these colonies. I mean, it depends on who's there. Yes. Because that can really mm -hmm. just like a class. It depends mm -hmm. on who's in it. But I know that for me, when I I went to McDowell when I was twenty six. Oh wow. And that blew my mind. I was there for six weeks. Mm -hmm. We got up in the morning. We had breakfast in the main house. You know, then a little man would drop off a picnic basket by our studio door and he wouldn't even knock or anything, <laughs> and then it would be our lunch, mm -hmm. and then we would meet back in the plate, in the main room for dinner, talked about our work, what we did, mm -hmm. what we, and then we'd play pool at night, or we'd go back to our studios, you know, but... Right, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I, I was so stunned by um, having to be, having to be by myself for eight hours all day, and I would, you know, I took a lot of naps, because <laughs> I thought, oh... I'm really, you know, I'm getting a little sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> Here I am. I'm very tired. And there's well, a bed right there. Real energy sapping. It is. <laughs> it really is. But that kind of freedom is, um, mm. is shocking. And I felt so, so incredibly priv like privileged. Mm -hmm. I that feeling stayed with me. I think that helped shape me to say, wait, you you really, this is really what you can do. Mm -hmm. So. That one was a great one. VCCA was wonderful. But also just being able to, to like go away for a week, you know, yeah. go to West Virginia and 
for two days. Two days you can get it. Yeah, yeah. I, I went up to I had a I did a, a riding retreat in Connecticut, um, that was like super close quarters. There was I think five or six other people there, um, and it was a kind of a blend between collaboration or like community and mm-hmm. alone time. Um, but there was one on. Sunday, the Sunday that it was like a weekend long thing. And on the Sunday I went for like a three and a half or four hour walk. Cause right at the back of the property, there's a, like a state trail, like a state park trail. that just goes for miles. And I got on it and I just walked for like three hours. Cause I was chasing down a poem and I needed to be by myself and walking. Yeah. Like those were the yeah. conditions that yeah. needed to be met walking. for yes. to, to get this poem out. So I went walking out and I was thinking about it and I wrote it and then I kind of like I reached a point where I was like, okay, I think I'm like, I think I'm good. And I checked my phone because I purposely like wasn't keeping track of time and it was like an hour and a half later. It's like, oh, I've missed all these things that were like planned Mm -hmm. that were optional things. But, you know, it's like, it's like I really I just needed to be just needed to go. And it's been so Art Farm was a or is a residency that. Um, is very much about like community and collaboration. Yeah. It's like you you're supposed like the point of it is to be to just kind of like right. in community with other artists. Yeah. Um, there is a residency that I applied to in Taos um, that is essentially like you have your own little hut, like your own little house thing, mm-hmm. and if you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't have to talk to anybody. It's like you can be there for like three weeks and not mm-hmm. see another living soul, and mm-hmm. like that that really entices me. Because uh, I've never been in that type that, of isolation yeah. it's before. It's a good challenge. Yeah. It's a wonderful challenge. Because it'll you'll solve it in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And I think that, like, I mean, I made the joke a little bit ago that, like, all of that alone time is draining. But it really, it's like, you really, I feel like when you don't have any anybody else around you, you have to find that balance between super concentration and super awareness and, like, the the loss of yourself in like in the space and it's it's tough to both be like it's exhausting to be hyper aware and hyper focused on stuff but it's also kind of exhausting to like not exist or like Mm -hmm. mentally exist which feels like it's a contradictory but that's interesting i hadn't thought about it that way that it can be tiring to feel that you're not part of something else that that's sort of that's sort of the human condition mm-hmm. is that we we get energy mm-hmm. from being connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're they're definitely uh, more often than not or more weekends that I would care to admit that have been like this where, like, I get up and I just don't like I don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily I don't know if I would feel like I'm wasting time, but you know it's like I'll I find like a show that's interesting and I'll spend like the entire weekend watching it. So I'm on some level I'm engaged with that but I've been like I haven't been outside all day I haven't like mm-hmm. really eaten or taken care of myself and at the end of the day it's like I am exhausted but it's because like I it's because I have not done anything that that it's, I don't know if it's the energy just never like right. took off and just kind of stayed at a baseline but it'll you know like nine o'clock will roll by and I'm like I just I feel like death right now and I haven't done uh-huh. anything all day nothing to show for it yeah I feel like death, and I have nothing to show for it <laughs> except my own dead self. Well, yeah, I think you know. For when I was at the colonies, I, one of the also one really mind-boggling thing was to be around painters. 
mm-hmm. and composers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, don't, I, I really wish for more um, sort of cross-pollination like that because painters look at the world really differently than writers do. And at least the painters I was around, and I'd never been around like actual painters ever before. Mm-hmm. So that was such a luxury. And to see, yeah, you know, they would get into their cabins and they would just start painting what they saw. Mm-hmm. Again, it was that sort of where they were in the world and where the light was and all of those things. That's what they wanted to respond to mm-hmm. rather than coming with their preconceived ideas of what they're going to paint. So that was huge for me. Yeah, I, I, one of my clo- really, really close, well, two of my really close friends when I was going through the program were, um, one was a painter, one was a sculptor, and then I guess my roommate, my other really close friend is a, um, like a printmaker and um, like a book binder. So a bunch of different visual mediums, but I loved hanging out with my friend Jane who did these huge, like not Rothko size, but mm-hmm. very large yeah. pieces um, and just being like, she painted me a couple of times just for studies, but mm-hmm. just being in her studio and hanging out with her while she was working on something. Um, I've always been really, really envious of, of the visual arts or especially with painting that you can have a painting that is either just like a landscape or like a cup on a table, like not just a cup right. on the end, like an end right. table with the light hitting it in a right. particular way in the shadows. And it's like, that's, that that's art. And I've, I think somewhat unconsciously I've never make a made a purposeful decision towards this but I've always wanted to be a poet that could write a landscape and just have it mm-hmm. you know or like a cup on a table and I feel like haiku, I keep coming back to haiku but I feel like haiku is about as close as I can get with that yeah, because it it's there are yeah. these little it's the appreciation and the acknowledgement that these little moments can there's something happening in them but like I don't know. I feel like if somebody were to write a, a collection of just landscape poems, of just like you looking at, just describing what you see at a particular point of day and mm-hmm. in a particular vista, like I don't, I don't know how people would react mm-hmm. to that because I feel like some people would say it's like, oh, this is this is great, especially if you're using like interesting language or you're, but that's like you would be beholden to like. I, I feel like the the pressure would be that you would need to to do some sort of like trick or some sort of like interesting language in order for people to to like see it or appreciate it. But yeah, but I don't you think that's the same thing that problem that landscape painters face. Oh, you know? hmm. you know, how do you paint a landscape in a way that has a new yeah that says something new that is provocative mm-hmm. and doesn't associate you know with all the other landscape paintings you've seen. Yeah. Well, think about Steve Matanley's book, you know, Night Book. Mm-hmm. I mean, every night, really painting these little miniatures of mm-hmm. the sky at yeah. three in the morning. So, um, yeah, I like, I'm so glad that Steve published that when he did because that was, I think, instrumental in helping me out yeah. through my thesis. Yeah. And just, I don't, I feel like that, and, I love this about Nightbook that it feels like it could not have been written by anybody else other than Steve. Yeah. Like in and yeah. like to that that level of I don't know, like obsessive insomnia that put him in like outside of his house at right. like three or four in the yeah. morning, like every night. Um, yeah. Well, at first I think he would just go out because he had time. Mm. You know, he he was probably wandering around his living room and watching television and mm-hmm. reading and then he went outside 
And then when he started writing, then it became a real mm. practice to go outside. Yeah. And I, I think, again, that's like another example of poetry that can shape your life. You know, it can shape you in ways that you live better mm-hmm. because of it. Because I think that period when he was writing that book was a powerful time in his life. Um, and so suddenly something that was probably viewed as a... Um, for him, as a, as at best a nuisance, yeah, this, you know, this <laughs> yeah. insomnia mm-hmm. became a real instrument for him to play on, and I, I, yeah, I think those are just little beautiful little jewels. Those poems, yeah, yeah, they remind me a little bit of Emily Dickinson because, mm. I mean, I was thinking about her earlier when we were talking about like the twilight or mm-hmm. those liminal spaces, like mm-hmm. um, you know, she basically I. She was interested in that moment between being alive and being dead. You know, like even her famous poem, I Heard a Fly Buzz, that moment, what's that moment? Mm-hmm. Not being alive and not being dead. Like really standing at that window ledge of the world and trying to trying to make sense and art out of that. Mm-hmm. And that, but her form was the same, you know, all, it was just... Four line stanzas, the meter, common meter, and she just kept spinning it and spinning it and spinning it, you know, and found like inf- infinity in yeah. it, you know. I think that that's what poetry really, um, it's that, you know, it's the structure. She had a pretty s- clear structure, mm-hmm. but she varied it 3,000 ways. Yeah. So I love that. <laughs> I love that she had. You know, she had many subjects, but she kind of... It's true she had one subject. I yeah. mean, it's true that death was her preoccupation. Yeah. And she could have written about it It's almost. It's almost like all of her poems are... It would be like the body of a monograph of, like, between yeah. life and death. Yes. And I'm... I'm appreciative of artists that I think have, like, that preoccupation of like this subject that they keep coming back to because I, I I love the fact that you can like the testament that it's endless that there's right. like that's right there's always something more that you can find in it and right. I think that as a yeah it was like a weird yeah. like example of poetry it's like the same I think it's the same way that like great poems or the poems that stick with you whenever you come back and read them like you're something's going to be different in it or it's going to meet you someplace that's right or there's going to be a new like a new color that suddenly is there that you're like oh i never noticed this yeah 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 and they don't they don't ever get you know the poems that you love that are as you say great poems either because they're great poems or they're great poems for you Mm -hmm. they don't get old on you like you say you keep seeing little things because you're different each Mm -hmm. time and that's um that's what I, I love now, you know, having, I, since I'm older, I love the fact that these poems are so deeply in me, mm-hmm. and they're more and more deeply in me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a nice, um, that's that ongoing relationship, mm-hmm. too, because it feels like relationships with people or with other things are, you know, they really can come and go, mm-hmm. but not with poetry. Yeah. Well, it's, so I've been... It's in, it's really interesting to, for you to say that you feel like you had a a relationship with poetry because I'm from from my practice it feels like like I can't 
like I don't have a choice in the matter that's like it's it like I get these images or I get these things and it's like I'm I'm essentially a conduit for this something that wants to come out Mm -hmm. and you know like it's it's coming out one way or another and like I'm I'm the thing like I'm the hand that it, it chooses to come out of um which I don't I don't know if, if I feel like that gives me like a more or less intimate connection to the poetry that I feel it's it's because I, I I would I feel like viewing as a relationship there's there's that um I know it's like it feels like it'd be much more reciprocal much you know it's like there's like an actual relationship that there's mm-hmm. there's a give and take and there's a communication yeah. um like actual communication but for me where it feels like it's just like a thing it like if it almost feels like it's a function of my of me that this it's just like this is some some endemic mm-hmm. like inherent aspect that's like it's just like this is how these things choose to manifest and I, it's like i don't i can't I can't pick the way that it wants to come out. I can't do anything other than it's like it's picked you. Yeah. Well, you you could ignore it. Yes. And, and I think I think that choice of not ignoring it because I, I do I do believe everybody's a poet hmm. when they're little. You know, mm-hmm. I I believe that. I believe it's very deeply connected to our humanity. Now maybe there are a few people that you would say no. <laughs> But it's only because they're they got swerved mm-hmm. another way, you know, the, whatever those conditions were. But I believe that that's how we we come into language, you know. So um, we were talking about this the other night at dinner. Like, how is it that words? If somebody says a word wrong, you just laugh mm-hmm. so, and you're not laughing at the person. It just tickles you. Mm-hmm. This language like tickles us all the way down to our toes. Yeah. And when you're a kid, that really kills you. Like you can't hardly stand saying, you know, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. And I, so I guess I believe, I believe something like that, you know, in terms of language and poetry and who we are. And you can then just lose interest in it or ignore it. But I do think it's, I think we came into the world that way. Yeah. I, I feel like I would agree because like I... I mentioned this in the podcast too, but I don't think that, I don't know if we've ever talked about it, that, um, it, I feel, I feel like I'm stuck in, or I'm in a weird space that, like, my, my goal for poetry is, like, the transfer of, of emotional experiences, like, that's, mm-hmm. that's really, especially, like, with personally discovering haiku and realizing, like, oh, that's what, that's what this is about, it's like, it, mm-hmm. the haiku is the, like, the external structure or like that maybe the internal structure of an experience and you're transferring that in hopes that it engenders the same thing in the yeah, reader right um but for me it's like i'm i want to um create like corresponding emotional experiences in in the people who encounter my poetry but i feel like it's a lot easier for me to do that with music than it is for writing because music for me feels like it's it's a uh, direct transposition Whereas with writing, it feels like it's a translation of it. And there's always yes. something that's like a little yes. bit missed or yes. some like there's a couple of extra steps that between yes. what I feel or what I've experienced and, and the poem. But I do think poetry in general um, is probably the most 
like if you could get language to like abstract expression feeling poetry is probably and there are, there are definitely types of poetry that are closer to this i think mm-hmm. but poetry in general i feel is like that's about as close as you can get to just like language as like pure Music. expression yeah Music. right yeah and i think that i and i would i definitely agree that kids i think are much closer to that because they their whole existence is it's like it's all new it's all fresh and they they don't know they don't know what words mean they don't they don't know the words for a lot of things yeah and so they're not they're not beholden to like the the tradition or the connotation that these words have it's like they just they find the thing that works the best for them in that moment and they can be like you're much more relying on like the sound of a word or like the feel of a word or you know so I guess like it's a, it feels like it seems like it's a much more synesthetic experience or expression for with kids in language that it's not like it doesn't um, like so it hasn't solidified yet into like we we use language as like as a tool yeah, of communication like, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I think like kids when, are, use it more expressively yeah like when they when you first start learning words you just keep repeating them because it feels so good mm-hmm. it's just natural you just want to say ba 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 you go louder and softer and higher and lower and before you know it you're just like thrilled and I think that it's interesting that like with the with the repetition when you're a child it's like trying it out in your mm-hmm. mouth and I when you get older if you repeat words for a long enough time like they lose their meaning and I think that for most people I think that it's like it's a really kind of off-putting experience for the word blue or like if you keep writing blue right, suddenly blue. it's like yeah. I have no comprehension of what this actually means right. anymore right. but I feel like that might be a step towards back like getting yourself back to Absolutely. what language was originally Absolutely. that's like it's just it's a bunch of squibbles on a page That's that, right. for whatever reason, we say means this particular, like this color, or this this representation of light. Um, yeah, that's like Gertrude Stein. I mean, yeah, she really didn't wasn't interested in the definitions of words. She was interested in the representation of language as sound. So, but you, it's impossible to read her and completely let go of meaning. Mm-hmm. You know. You, you see, she tried to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think she was very successful, but um, her explorations with repetition and sound, I think, are completely um, transcendent to me. I, she's one of the poets or writers, I think, that puts me in a new place with language. Mm. You know, when I hear her read it, when I hear her read it, I can't believe it. When I read it myself, too. I feel like I come out of I come I come out of there mm-hmm. um, where meaning is no longer important, and like you said, like it's like music. You mm-hmm. have an experience with with music, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. The words don't matter. Right. Yeah. Which I um I listen to a lot of um like Japanese mm-hmm. bands, and um I've listened to them long enough that I can pick. I can. I'm beginning to pick out certain. Like recognize certain Japanese words, but for by and large, when I listen to it, like because I don't, I can't comprehend Japanese. It really does feel like it's just it's another instrument in the kind of in the harmony of the song, um, which is a really has always been a really interesting experience to just to listen to language or or to words as, as just sound, sound right. and like an expression. Right. Um, and I I've often wondered if that's so when I was, um, I guess, like a young poet, most of my inspiration 
for writing came from um, like vocalists of bands, like reading lyrics mm-hmm. in like the the liner notes of albums and stuff. And um, I guess for me, it's like that's it's like you are you're writing these words, but you are also in a place or in a position that you can perform them to the level of inten- like emotional intensity that you intend for them to have. Mm-hmm. That if you're a poet, you know, either just seeing them on a page or doing a reading the traditional way that most poets do readings like if there's any any heightened emotion or any extra thing that needs to be there it's usually like lost or if it's performed that way it makes people in like the traditional reading setting very uncomfortable because like i don't like what why are you why are you yelling at me suddenly mm-hmm. right now like what's what's going on here um but i don't i don't know if i've ever put together that like like vocals for songs are in that we kind of that weird space between poetry and, are, yeah. and music. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought, I mean, I've often thought of like when I was in high school, like Jackson Brown, I listened to Jackson Brown all the time and I thought he was a great lyricist. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, I don't think I understood some of his songs and I kind of liked that. I thought they were so deep. Mm-hmm. They were a little beyond me mm-hmm. and I got, and I really loved his writing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are a lot of lyrics that you wouldn't be able to read and enjoy. They would be dull right. without the music. Yeah. You know, without the music, they would be nothing. Mm-hmm. But then there are some really good lyricists, and you just aspire to creating that kind of song on the page. You right. Know? Yeah. So I have you read Ben Lerner's Hatred of Poetry? It's a small green book. It's, no. Okay. Um, it's not a title I would really be drawn to. Yeah, I, Anthony um, Anthony Mall, who was my I think my first guest on, um, so this is back at like yeah. season one stuff. Um, recently, he read it a couple months ago, and he suggested that I check it out. So I, I put it on my Amazon wish list, and then um, found it on the cheap for like huh. a cent. I was like, okay, I can I yeah. can justify spending this amount of money for yeah. a book that I don't know if I'm gonna enjoy. Yeah. Um, but he, like his his idea is that like people or that poetry is often viewed or often like maligned and hated because it's, um, or one one of his his theories is that um, because people instinctively recognize the like the limitation of language, like mm-hmm. kind of the idea that like everyone should be a poet but not everyone can attain that. But also like the most perfect poem out there is not going to. Is, is only going to begin to approach the level of like what poetry as like a concept is like that space like language yeah. as pure expression yeah that it's like you can't you can never get to because language has like using like the, the building bro- blocks of language already have their meanings and like meaning, everything has right. a connotation and it's um like there's no um Actually, I'm reading um, a theater book called uh, The Empty Empty Space. And the first section is like theater, like deadly theater. It's like how, how theater doesn't doesn't live up to like what performances can be. And the guy who wrote it, um, I don't remember his, what the author's name was, but he was talking about how um, like with a musician, the, the thing that the tool that you use to perform the tool that you use in the performance is as an instrument is something that doesn't change and it doesn't matter what the performer looks like or who they are or whatever is 
It's like as long as you can play, you can create this whatever. Whereas with actors, um, the the performance and the tool are inseparable from each other because it's the body and mm-hmm. like the body. As soon as you start, like as soon as you open your mouth or you begin to act, either how you look or how you sound or your own experiences like that, it you cannot separate the performance Shapes. from those. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like language especially with poetry is subject to that too, that you mm-hmm. cannot separate um, like the meanings of like with, even with Gertrude Trent, you, you cannot, can't. you can't separate, you right. can get close to it, but yes. you can never completely devoid unless you start making up words right. or just to have to do like make sounds on a, you know, just right. like a bunch of um, like breaking it down to the kind of linguistic, um, like the linguistic, I don't know, like the like those building blocks of just like sounds of like a palatal stop or um, yeah, you know, like a fricative or whatever, and just have that on a page. But yeah. <laughs> so I'm currently holding Gracie's paw, um, with her head almost underneath the couch. It's hard to have a conversation and, and hold a dog's paw at the same time, but you get better at it. Yes. Let me see here. Um, if there's anything else you had sent me. <laughs> oh, oh, she let go. She did? I'm free. Oh. Um... I like, you know, the other thing is I want to say that I've really gotten to love, um, and I, I guess I'm saying this because I don't know if younger, newer poets explore the page in the ways, you know, one of the things that's nice to help people do as a teacher is to really um, encourage people to discover what their line is, their mm-hmm. line. And that's something it's um, really important to me I think I am assuming it's important to most developed poets, but when you're first starting out, it's not so important. It's, you know, you're more you're more interested in what you're saying, mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit in how you're saying it, mm-hmm. but not what the line's going to give you. You mm-hmm. don't you don't really understand what that line can do for your writing with mm-hmm. with, with your poem. And I I think since you know in free verse, if that's what we're all, a lot of us are writing, mm-hmm. um, you have to one of the things you you have to keep your eye open for is your um, your sound, you mm-hmm. know, on the page. What's your sound? And what does your sound look like on the page? Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about on the page. I'm not talking about performance writing because right. I think that's a very different, it's a very different way of experiencing poetry. So how do you make the, how do you make the white page sing? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the question. But you, you have... You really can think about that the beginning, the middle, and the end of your line. You can also think about where it is on the page, and you mm-hmm. and you kind of got the whole page if you want. I mean, I think yeah. I think Whitman was very helpful to us in getting us to the other side of the page and seeing that it was quite poetic over there too. Yeah, but it wasn't prose, right? You know, like that was that was sort of his charge was to have a long, really long breath. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that composition, like 
and I mean it as composing, mm-hmm. like thinking of the page as a kind of musical score. Mm. And where where does the, the word hit that page at that moment? And it's when it strikes that part, if whether it's the middle of the page or wherever you are on the po- or on the page, where it strikes it makes a certain sound. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I like that's how I like writing. Mm-hmm. And I hope that my students really get excited about that and not that they and i'm not saying it as you know this is this is important like you have to eat your vegetables (laughs) but i'm saying it like it's so thrilling because you do let go of meaning then Mm -hmm. you know like like we were talking about how do we let go of what we're saying Mm -hmm. and how do we get more interested in how we're saying it yeah and what are all the hows involved in that Mm -hmm. you know one of the hows is is where that word where you break the line and where you break the line is huge yeah uh, how you punctuate, how you punctuate. It's so mm-hmm. different, punctuation is so different in poetry than in prose. Mm-hmm. It's much more of a sort of scoring mechanism. You yeah. know? It's very beautiful. Like, whoever thought, at least to me, whoever thought the semicolon or the colon was beautiful. Yep. But it's a visually beautiful p- mm-hmm. part of a poem. Yeah, I, and I love, I love writers who write relatively, relatively conventional, but they will throw in like a double colon. In like a situation like oh whoa yeah like, wait a minute yeah or um uh charles wright with his dashes that just kind of like he'll dash a he'll line dash. and he'll never go back to it no. he'll just like that's it and you're like no. oh and then there'll be another dash in that that is not related it's like it that's not you know the two the two dashes don't denote that this is a like parenthetical or like an interjected thing that's some kind, that's right. kind of modifier it's just like this is just another thought and that's like that's how you break it, right? Right. Yeah, I've I've realized that. Um, I think that I use line breaks like commas, and I use stanza breaks like periods. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because I tend to not, um, I tend to not, like punctuate. Usually, I tend to not punctuate my poetry. Right. Um, commas will will occasionally show up in there. I've written very, very few like full sentence, or I write tend to write in full sentences, but I never, I very rarely ever will throw like a period mm-hmm. on there. Um, and I think for, for me, it's more of like like the way that the period looks on a page next to a poem. It's like they, it's like they don't, they don't go. It's like um, like orange juice and toothpaste as flavors. It's like oh, I don't, I don't want, I don't want those two next to each mm-hmm. other. Um, yeah, it's like putting dress-up shoes on your... You know, it's like dressing up for a job interview all of a sudden when you thought it was just about you. Right, you know, yeah. It's, it's like, a, no, no, you got to wear this. Yeah. you got to wear the tie. Um, but I was actually... There was a poem that I was messing around with that I wrote uh, completely in dialogue. Mm-hmm. And on the page, like, reading it, if somebody were to just hear it, um, like, I don't, I don't know how they would feel about it, but on the page I used... Um, like the white space or I guess like returns between lines to signify how much of like a pause or how much of a breath mm-hmm. I want these things mm-hmm. to have happen. Um, so it's, it's really interesting looking at it because I'm so used to like, like novels and stuff or like plays where dialogue is just jam packed right in there where this thing is, I don't know, it's maybe 12 lines. No, probably no more than 15, but it's like a page it's like a page and a half mm-hmm. long because of how it's how it's spaced out. Yeah. Um, 
all that white space you know it's I do just, too it's that white space is so beautiful for poets I, I think it's probably it's probably the only it's probably the only art form where white space functions the way it does functions as a kind of like a rest in music or mm-hmm. that that kind of silence and there's all different ways to play that silence that white space mm-hmm I was actually thinking the other day about the comma that you said because I'm like, <laughs> because I think the dash is very um, instrumental mm-hmm. in poetry. I think poets use it all like Emily Dickens uses it very different than Charles Wright. Right. People have different ways of playing the dash. Mm-hmm. Same with the colon. Mm-hmm. Um, periods or to use or not to use or not to use the line break, but is the comma? I'm thinking the comma is kind of the least. Um, interesting. I you know I just hmm. thought of this the other day because yeah. I thought, well, line break is enormously powerful, yeah. right? Exclamation point, quotation marks, dashes, but does the comma serve more than? Is it always punctuation? No matter is it ever? Well, I guess now that I'm saying it, I'm thinking of Cummings. He used it. He Cummings used Ooh, it as a visual. Yeah, he did not use it as a. Mm-hmm. He's he transformed it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel like with like every bit of punctuation, like in, yeah. I, I, Cummings used parentheses, like open parentheses, parentheses like yes. Charles Wright uses dashes, where he'll yes. just throw parentheses in there, and you think it's going to be this weird parenthetical thing, but it's totally no. It's just no, it's visual. Yeah, it's a visual element. Yeah. So I've I've heard this, and I've I've done very limited research in it, but I'm curious if you know this for sure or not. But I've heard that. Um, I don't remember if it was most of what Cummings wrote or if there was a particular collection that whoever was talking about this said that this about that most of his poems, either by and large or in this collection, were essentially sonnets that he messed with. Like he pushed mm-hmm. the form as far he as he could take it. But there's like there was like if you if you could reconstruct them, they would be essentially mm-hmm. sonnets. Mm-hmm. And I've I've been wondering about that and um so I, I, not not I guess not yeah. enough to like research. Yeah, <laughs> research I don't know. But... I mean, yeah, I know that certainly a lot of poems of his that I've read are sonnets. Okay. Messed with, like mm-hmm. you say, yeah. all altered, sort of like um, John Berryman's, you know, dream songs. Those mm-hmm. are all sonnets, mm-hmm. sort of the original. But I don't know whether he has a collection. Uh, maybe he does. Because that was actually hearing that was the kind of foundational bit of thought for me on uh so i've i've developed a theory that there's no such thing as good poetry or bad poetry uh-huh. um i think for because for me it's like if you're dealing with qualifying as something as good or bad then you have an idea of like there's a there's a perfect form or a perfect whatever that that you're measuring this thing up to and i think with art in general it's like so subjective that you can't like there's no there's uh-huh. no perfect landscape it's, right there's degrees and variations of this right. thing. Um, but I do think that if you're writing in, there's a crow out there. Um, I do think that if you're writing in a form, you can have like a good or a bad sonnet because you have these conventions, you have these things that you're supposed to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like I, the thought has developed into that, um, like qualifying poems or art in general is good or bad is that like you're missing the point of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a better, a more effective way uh, to to 
render a poem or a piece of artist to like look at like how effective is it at, at, like what is it trying to convey is it doing it in more or less conventional means and mm-hmm. how effective is mm-hmm. it at conveying whatever it is that it's trying to convey because mm-hmm. that way you free up like Gertrude Stein as a language poet it's like you you approach and you deal with her work much differently than you would um like Whitman mm-hmm. like there's totally you cannot judge those two together at all because they're trying to they're doing and they're intending for them is like two wildly different things and that like the whole point of that for me was Cummings is that he you know like his poems are probably not I mean they might be good sonnets but it's like that like that understanding of like how far within rules that you can push something until it breaks and is not effective anymore that is like weird abstract experiments of language and um I don't know, like poems on the pages form. I think Cummings is wildly successful as right. like straight up, you know, Shakespearean sonnets or sonnets in the style of Shakespeare. It's like I don't know if they're if they'd be super effective with that, but you know, like, like maybe that's the point. You know, it's like he would he would intended people to approach these things and to be challenged by, like I'm going to break right. and push this thing as far as I can take it and still have it potentially be like I'm still within the sonnet form I haven't crossed that line yet right but yeah he was such a radical you know he and I mean I think all of those guys were in a they were experiment doing language experiments yeah and that's the beauty of what they did they they really opened the doors for all of us to walk through yeah I love that I love that about Stein I love it about Whitman I love it about Cummings. They 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 said this is my place, you know. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm sitting. <laughs> this is where poetry and I are hanging out, you yeah. know. This is what we're doing. You can like it or not, but they they sort of make a place for you to ask the same question. Yeah. What can I do here? Right. What can I sort of bring to this? Yeah, and I I noticed this when I was in I guess this was in like senior year of high school. Um I was taking humanities class and we were running through like the big like the big moments. Right. Big periods right. of art. And as we were getting close to like the 1800s, I began seeing, and this is something, this is a theory that I've yet to fully develop, but has always kind of stuck with me that, um, like the impressionists were the first movement towards art as pure abstraction, like mm-hmm. visual art as pure right. abstraction, right. because, and I, it took me a while to realize this and like how the rest of like the the art movements that came after that fit into this, but like with the impressionists, or at least with Monet, I think specifically, um, like the his intention or his focus of a painting wasn't the object it was light and how light affected mm-hmm. the things that that he was right. painting right. Um, or the things that he saw which is why he did i think at least one of the reasons why he would do so many of like the series of, of pieces at the same spot just different times of day it's like mm-hmm. he was studying light so like the physical like physical um representation like accurate physical representation stopped being the focus at least with him and then right. after that um like with Cezanne it was color or like using color as the as the focus as you know um and then with the or like his focus was color same thing I guess with Fovis it was like the, the use of color and to depict things and then with the um oh like the cubist it was perspective mm-hmm. and then with surrealism it was like reality um and I feel like there's probably comparable modes of that with poetry or with language, although I don't know if... I, 
people have probably written about it. But, oh, yeah, there are. Um, but, like, cubist or a surrealist writing yeah. that trying to, to break language in that way. Right. Um, and and then, it's like, you know, the Dadaists that came out and just totally upended everything. It's like, none of this matters. None of this, all this is meaningless. We're going to make art. We're right. just going to do whatever the hell right. we want to do. Um, and then I feel like that made the space for, like, the abstract expressionists or, like, Mondrian, right. where it's just, like, you're using... You're, you're distilling this stuff down to just, like, color and expression. And I think that it's probably easier with painting and easier with music with, you know, like, Cage and all the guys who were... All the, the uh, like, classical people that were breaking that stuff. And, even, like, even punk in more mainstream stuff mm-hmm. is, like, reducing music down to just expression and, like, three chords. Right. <laughs> and all the variations you can do with that. Um, I think it's a little bit easier because... Like music, like the sounds of music and the colors of of art don't necessarily have like entrenched connotations mm-hmm. to them. Whereas mm-hmm. language, it's like like we were saying before, it's a lot harder to get to that space where language can just be abstract mm-hmm. because you're always like even if you use if you mush a bunch of words together in a nonsensical way, each one of those words has its own like right meaning attached. To it, right? Um, and even like, um, well, I don't know if this would be an example of that, but like Christian Bach's Unoya, mm-hmm. you know, it's like putting all these words together, which is a singular vowel, but still, I mean, I guess his intent was to still come up with like a coherent story mm-hmm. in it, right? Um, right. But I've I've noticed with my own poetry that I'm I'm less concerned with the sounds that I am with like a, a some sort of inherent or intuitive rhythm because uh-huh. um, there'll be many times it's like I'll be stuck like there's a poem that I was working on a, maybe like a month ago that the the second to last line needed a like an act a, like a strong active verb that was a um, single syllable that um wasn't like a long single syllable mm-hmm. word it's like there was that was the criteria that mm-hmm. that needed to be and it just it took me a little bit to going through like synonyms and stuff to figure out what originally it was um sway but i think that i i'm at least right now hanging out hanging out around crease because it's um actually crease and sway um i could probably oh, i don't know if i can yeah let me see if i can find it because I, I went for a walk um, at Meadowood, like right up where 83 and um, and Falls meet. Um, and uh, this was, it was actually workshopped by, okay, um, workshopped by ex-MFA or oh. old MFA students, um, Anthony, Tyler, Mandy, and Mary. Aw. Aw. <laughs> Hi. Um. <laughs> uh, Let's see. Nope. Well, whatever. Well, we it can was, look at it another time. Yeah, I was it was it was about like what like the wind picks up and the kids on the, the jungle gym yeah. stop for a moment and blank like everything else does in the wind. And originally it was sway and oh. everyone was like, That's a little too like conventional and uh-huh. I, but it's like I know that it needed to be like monosyllabic and it needed to be like a strong image like a strong uh, image based verb um 
so then, so I think it's, because I think the line is, um, and the, the kids or the uh, children on the jungle gym quiet for a moment increase like everything else does in the wind. And it's like, <laughs> better than sway. Yes. Um, it has that kind of, crease has that, that long E in it too. And it has that, it has a little bit of tension in mm-hmm. it. So it's a but, little bit of a dark word to me. So since, uh, since we're coming to the end, there are, there's one main question that I want to ask okay. everybody that I've, I talk to from now on. If you, <laughs> if you had the vocabulary to describe your internal landscape, what would it be? Well, what does everybody else say? Um, well, for me, mine is um, like South Dakota Badlands Prairie. Oh, you mean literally a landscape. Yeah. Like... It doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, oh. Sarah Lynn's was like uh, a cave of like a geode um, that was like wow. cracked in half. Um, Mary's was like <laughs> frosting. Oh, frosting. But if you... If you oh, it to... doesn't have to be a place. No, no, no. Just like if you, whatever... what. Whatever you think about, or whatever image comes to mind when you think about like your internal emotional space. Wow, wow Michael. <laughs> Shreyas is, is a sci-fi planet that's populated with other people. Really? Yes, which blew my mind. That, that blows my mind. That internal spaces could be populated by anything other than like yeah. you or nothing. Well, wow. Well, could it be a dog? Yeah. Could my inner landscape be a dog? I think Mary Oliver's probably is. Yeah, I think I'd go, I'd go with a dog, <laughs> for now. <laughs> Though at other times in my life, I'm sure I'd say something different. I would say also a cloud. Okay. Se- several, several, several clouds that I'm looking at right now against the blue sky. That's a great internal landscape. Would it be clouds yeah. in the shape of a dog? Oh, it. Would be clouds in the shape of dogs. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> when I feel light, you know, oh yeah, and it's also the light is coming through the clouds, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's that bird that flies across through the clouds. There's a, there's more going on, actually. The bird flies through the cloud that looks like a dog. Yes. Okay, got yeah. it. That's it. Okay. That's it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, coaxing. Well, because I've it's been ever since I discovered what mine feels like on the inside. It's it's been interesting to me to see if because for me like that that image has it manifests itself in so many ways in my life and it feels like that's a very like core thing for me and it's been interesting to me to to talk to other people to see if that like kind of like it's like you are a poet it's like if you are these particular things and they just manifest in, mm-hmm. in like in certain ways um yeah but mine's like prairie just vast prairie mm-hmm. um occasionally there is like a fire pit with a log next to it sometimes there's a very um like spartanly furnished room in a house like a very small house like a studio apartment mm-hmm. but it's like a house um but were you to open up the closet door, it would be all of the other, like the infinite other rooms of me contained in like that one That's space. Um, like and it's that weird, too. like sometimes I am the prairie, sometimes mm-hmm. I am watching the prairie, and sometimes I'm watching like a avatar of myself wander around the prairie. Mm-hmm. So there's like that weird sort of, yeah, that you distance. Should, but You should write that. Have you written that? I've gotten close. I like the line, sometimes I am the prairie. I like that line. I like thinking about that. 
It's very beautiful, especially here in Baltimore. Yeah. To to have a prairie with you. Yeah. So I'm I want I've been meaning to and I will apply to the Badlands National Park residency program because I really I'm very curious. Like being in Nebraska gave me a, a a good sense that like what I felt on the inside is what's yeah like what's actually there. Yes. But I feel like if I actually hit the prairies, I'll have I'll get a very clear image if that's actually what's kicking around. Yeah, that's inside interesting. Of me. Yeah, that, that's interesting. What landscape matches your yeah yeah I felt that way when I went to. Um, New Mexico. Mm. I'd never seen a sky like that in my life. I didn't think the sky could change. <laughs> I thought the sky here, the sky here in Baltimore was the sky, but that's not true. Yeah, the sky in Nebraska is very, yeah. very different than yes. the sky here. Yes, and that I think that's probably what's so important to me is the sky. So, would you be? Would your internal landscape be clouds in the shapes of dogs with a bird flying through it, but New Mexico sky? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I don't think I would have the dog cloud in New Mexico. So I guess I get, I mean, I get, can I get a few skies oh, yeah. for my internal landscape? Because yeah. we'll say it's the sky. Okay. We'll just say that for ease, okay. ease of purpose. <laughs> but um, definitely the New Mexico sky is one that I... It's on the other side, on the other side of the sky. Yeah, it's on the other side, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for um, having me. Yeah. And so the last question. Um, oh, there, there's another one? Yeah. Well, this this is one that I just, it's just been fun for me to try to answer. Um, do you have any, any questions, any question for me? <laughs> Anything you want, any topic, whatever, just if there's something you've always wanted to ask or something that you just now thought of to ask. If there's not, it's cool. I well, maybe you could tell me what your favorite food is. Right now. Ooh, favorite food right yeah, now. Right now. Um for breakfast. For breakfast. Yeah. Cuz you used to serve coffee. I did. But I don't drink it. No, no. I didn't think you did. Um, what do you like to have first thing in the morning? Ideally, I think it would be a, like a huge bowl of Cheerios and a big glass of orange juice. Oh. Um, I, when I was younger, I used to, like, that was my breakfast I had you know, like every day. Every day. Oh. Um, and there's a certain level of, I don't know, like both nostalgia, but kind of just like when I would live by myself, there would be some autumn mornings when I'd wake up and I'd like throw the windows open. Like, you know, I wouldn't be nobody else in my apartment. I wouldn't have anything on and I would just like sit on my bed with the windows open with the Cheerios and the orange juice and they have it's like that that's like heaven to you yeah like that that quietness and that sort of all those all those little circles too yeah and very zen yeah and there's I don't know there's a level of like I mean I don't know I don't know if this is a privileged thing to say or not but Cheerios feel like a kind of austere choice yeah. like not not purposely austere but like I've, I've yeah. noticed that some of my tastes like they're not I'm not. I'm not a man of very large or very expensive appetites. Um, there are certain things like instruments that, or like a mic that just, yeah. by the nature of what they are, it's like they cost money. But they're right. not like the most high-end thing. It's just sort of like, right. like somewhere either like right in the middle or a little bit less than the middle. And yeah. I feel like Cheerios are one of those things. It's like that's just like I could, I could, just, I could eat them, and they're they're cheap. They're just oat I know. circles. I know. But like, there's something about, and I can't. I can't do uh, plain like original Cheerios with milk. 
So they're, they're just, it's just a bowl of dry Cheerios and orange juice. Okay, that's very but, good information for me. Well, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this, is, this has been episode nine. Uh, I'd like to thank Kendra officially um, for sitting here. I'd like to thank Gracie for being good and for offering her paw to both me and Kendra. <laughs> um uh yeah Thank next you. next um next episode or next month's guest will be uh the oh crap the black ladies lunch collective i think is the name um i will double check on that uh i will make sure that i have it correct for when i actually sit down and talk with them um but thank y'all for listening um i don't know hopefully it's a nice day wherever y'all are it's like go outside and do something or take a nap i don't know it's kind of chilly in baltimore um so go do something go do something that fills you with a sky and clouds right. in the shapes of dogs dogs yeah <laughs> so until next time <laughs>